Hey y'all. Giggity giggity. <laughs> hey y'all, welcome to Art Sipstery, where we discuss all things art history. I'm Sarah, and another special guest today is my husband. Yay. <laughs> and we are going to talk about the life and paintings of Joan Mitchell. So we are going to start when Joan Mitchell's born. So she's born on February 12, 1925 in Chicago, Illinois. Joan is the youngest out of two siblings. Her father is James Herbert Mitchell, often calling like him Jimmy is instead of Herbert or James. And her mother is Marion Strobel Mitchell. Before we dive into Joan, though, let's get some history on her parents. So, Jimmy's lineage stretches back to Havana, Cuba, where his ancestors moved to Vermont in 1839. Jimmy's parents were Jim and Sarah Mitchell, and he was the third child out of four. Sarah was dying from the same thing that killed her father, which is pulmonary pneumonia. Um, Do you know what that is? I'm assuming pneumonia for the lungs. (laughs) It's an infection that inflames the air sacs in your lungs. The ball sacs? No, the air sacs. The air sacs. Oh, okay. Dang. It's the worst way to die. Oh, my gosh. I don't know. I don't have balls. I mean, hopefully (laughs) you don't. Oh, my gosh. If not, I've been living a lie these years. (laughs) No. Um, Wait, that's. So I felt something the other day. Oh, never mind. It's not not the ball sacs. It's probably the remote. Yep. (laughs) It's pretty big. (laughs) Yeah. Okay, all right, back to her parents. His mother, Sarah, died just a few days before his ninth birthday, which is just incredibly sad, just being parentless on your birthday. But also, I mean, it's your mom. I know it's life, but still, it's it's pretty sad, right? I think it's sad. Uh, it depends on the mom. Oh, my goodness. forced Jimmy's sisters to, like, thrust into the role of mother, and so she took care of her siblings and a very sick infant because her his, their mom gave birth and so she's basically the household mom now. Uh, the last child of Jim and Sarah Mitchell was a boy named Claire, and he died of meningitis. Now, this all had a huge impact on Jimmy because basically he was adopted by his sister. Like, that's his mom figure. And then he had this bitterness to the world, like, his whole life because of, like, his mom dying and just... Yeah, at a young age, wow. just experience. Cry me a river. Wow, wow, wow. Blame the world for your mom's death. Uh, his dad, Jim, died from cholera, which is an infection of the intestine. I don't know if I'm saying that right. Hopefully I am. Among other things, he had other illnesses. <laughs> so that was just the, the tip of the iceberg. Uh, his sister turned mother, Gertrude, had a family of her own to take care of. And his brother, Will, disappeared a couple years ago. And he would, like, kind of come back into Jimmy's life. So Jimmy was just on his own and, yeah, doing things at a young age. Uh, now, this is part of the reason I want to talk about Joan's parents. Because Jimmy literally enrolled in the University of Chicago without a high school diploma. Um, which, it's crazy that it's possible back then that you can just enroll into college without a high school diploma like i wish i could have just been like you know what screw high school let me just go apply to college yeah they're gonna what base it off of what yeah There's i know a exactly. database or nothing like they can't ask like for your tri- tri- scripts, transcripts because you know how transcript well guess what you just type them out 
<laughs> like, oh, let me get my typewriter and fake it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> fake it till you make it. He dropped out later um, and then reapplied again. And then he headed towards a degree in science. After Jimmy graduated, he was just talking with some friends and was like, you know what? I'm going to be a doctor. So Jimmy did what everyone was able to do back then, apparently, and just became a protege of Dr. Oliver Almsbury or Almsby uh, at Rush Medical College. This put Jimmy on his path where he would have a 40 year career as a dermatologist and syphologist. Syphologist? I don't even know. I'm guessing it's something with syphilis. Syphilis. (laughs) I guess this is where the saying comes, you know, if you put your mind to it, you can do it. No, just kidding. Some some people shouldn't do that. (laughs) Just making it easy to enroll in college and getting a medical degree, though. Like, that's... Way to go, go, Jimmy. Like, back in my day, I could go and do this and that. Yeah, I guess it was easier back then. Yeah, it was. In 1918 is when Jimmy meets Harris, Marion Strobel. Marion was a go-getter and she took the steps towards Jimmy and basically said, you're mine, so we're going to get married. No, not really. She didn't didn't do that. But she did take the lead in pursuing him. He didn't pursue her. And then the couple was married on December 6, 1922. Now, I did mention Harris, Marion Strobel. Yes, Marion comes from money. Marion's father is Charles Lewis Strobel, and he was an engineer that worked for Andrew Carnegie for 27 years. And he was the guy that invented the Z-bar, which is like a beam that like is like a cross section and forms like right angles, like a Z, and bridges. And I guess that's like groundbreaking. Mm. So interesting. And obviously he did a bunch of bridges over the years. I'm not going to get super into it but marion's mother and marion by my research suffered from depression and marion found her mother henry henrietta in the bathtub with her wrist cut and this sent marion into like her life with guilt and anxiety and so marion just kind of dealt with the death of her mom kind of the same way you know jimmy did except she found her she became a doctor no, she didn't become a doctor. She actually was a well-established poet for 46 years. And she went um, from editor to staffer with a monthly magazine, Poetry, a magazine of verse. And then Marion went unrecognized for having saved the magazine during the Depression and also for stepping in as co-editor when the magazine's chief was drafted for World War II. Aww. So it's kind of foreshadowing, though, on what, what Joan's life is about not getting credit Oh, I thought drafting. Well, no. <laughs> no. Now that we have set up, let's get into Joan. Originally, Joan's parents wanted a boy and to name the boy John, but when they realized that Joan was a female, they were like, all right, Joan it is. Let's get rid of that H and add an A. <laughs> I was like, surprise. Surprise. So Joan went to school at Francis W. Parker School in North Chicago, the same school her sister attended. This school dates back to 1901, and Francis Parker, whom the school is named after, wanted to make students aware of working society, like aware of what you do in society and like the working class. He wanted students to take social responsibilities and not separate school from what's happening in the world. Like he wanted it to be cohesive. Kind of like that, right? It's different. 
Um, this part of Joan's life is what pushed her to have a free thinking attitude and a truth to who she is and will soon to be. During this point in Joan's life, she started taking Saturday classes at the Art Institute, and this is where Joan really started to shine. Joan learned a lot here and constantly thrived for her father's attention. Jimmy did enjoy art and he loved watercolors. Some Sundays, he would take the girls to Lincoln Park Zoo and look out to the boonies. Uh, or, wow, <laughs> said look out. Or go out to the boonies. And they would do plain air Wait, painting. they saw go- the Goonies? Yeah, they saw the Goonies. And they would they would do plain air painting. Of so the this is like 40 years, 50 years before the you actual You know what? Goonies. Just let her live her life. Let Joan live. You're listening to Linkin Park and watching the Goonies? <laughs> Holy crap. <laughs> oh, that's my kind of uh, night. No. They would go to Linkin Park Zoo or like out into the country. I just call it the Boonies because that's what I call oh, it. Oh, they say the Goonies. So no, just... the Boonies. And they would do plain air painting. Do you know what plain air painting is? No? No. <laughs> Good thing because I wrote it down. If you don't know what that is, it's basically just you're escaping from the insides confinement of a wall. What? You're escaping from the confinements of walls. Like you're just outside in the moment enjoying your painting. Why don't you just say I'm just painting? I know. I don't know. I don't know. Joan and Jimmy did not really have a close relationship. She would constantly crave his attention throughout her life. And she would also want to punch him at times as well. Her father was super critical of everything she did. And she would often paint in her closet at night. Later in her career, this would be where she would create her works at night. That must be a huge closet. Not in the closet, just like at night. Oh. Sorry. (laughs) <laughs> I was like in the closet. I was like, wow. I mean, technically, if you think about it, if you have like one giant room, you could technically call it a closet. Or since it's back in the day, she painted in a wardrobe, <laughs> <laughs> not a closet. Like Narnia? Like Narnia. Maybe it was like a magical place. You went to a bigger spot. Yeah, we never know. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. The part of the reason why she painted in the closet was so that she could. Ex- See, it is the closet. Well, and when she was a kid. Oh, okay. Like, when she was a kid, part of the reason why she painted in the closet was to, like, get oh, okay. get away from, like, her father. Like, okay. you know. I'm just testing you. Her. I'm just testing you. Okay. You're just making sure I know where I'm at. Yeah, you, pa- you passed. All right. Good to know. <laughs> from a young age, Joan got the nickname Bullethead. You see why? As we dive into She had her a pointy life. head. Yeah, of course. Like, <laughs> like, like cone heads. Cone heads, yeah. <laughs> exactly what I was picturing that. <laughs> No, she didn't. Take us to your leader. (laughs) (laughs) But at a young age, she would attack challenges or people head on and use her fear to drive her. This would be how she coped with a lot of things later in her life. Now, Joan saw things differently from other people. When Joan looked at letters, she saw color and she also felt color. At a young age, Joan knew she wasn't like the rest of the kids. And even adults around her, she knew she wasn't like that. This is called synesthesia. This is a neurological condition which one of the senses triggers perceptions through another sense. Now, Joan had the most common, which is colored letters, but there are many others. For instance, some people can smell sight or even taste shapes. Joan, Imagine having that ability and then just farting really like loud (laughs) and this stinky. And then what color? I wonder what color that would generate. I don't know. We need to find people that have this uh, synesthesia. If you're listening and you have that ability, let us know <laughs> what a fart looks like color-wise or feels like. 
I don't think it's specifically to farts. I don't know. I'm mean, just you say like smell or taste. Like, <laughs> I wonder what. I'm just wondering. Hashtag yeah. wondering. Okay. All right. Joan not only was able to see colored letters, but she also had emotional color synesthesia. Basically, what that is is when your emotion is color, and she can see that, so she can see your emotions as color, like Daredevil. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah. Now but Joan. <laughs> now Joan was not always known as an artist. She was also very athletic. Joan was a fierce figure skater, and at 13 years old, she would compete in her first championship held at the Chicago Arena. Joan took the Senior Ladies Trophy, and then following that, she placed second in the Midwest Regionals Junior Division in Cleveland. She didn't stop there, though. Two weeks after the Midwest Regionals, she placed fifth at the U.S. Championship in St. Paul, Minnesota. This is crazy, <laughs> like, knowing that she's known for her paintings, but she also was, like, competing to be on the verge in the Olympics. Uh, now, in the 1940s, Joan was paired up with Bobby Specht. They did not place for the 1940 U.S. Championships, but they did win the Midwest Junior Pairs title. And in 1942, Joan placed fourth in the Junior Women's Division of the U.S. Figure Skating Championship. Now, it seems to me that Joan would be on her way to a skating career, but nope, that's not the case because that same year in 1942... Wait, wait, let me guess. She broke her ankle. <laughs> no. Actually, she got her knee bashed in, you know? Oh. Like, Tommy you know? Yeah. Oh. <laughs> that sucks. Sucks to be her. <laughs> yeah. No, she didn't break her ankle. She actually attended Smith College in Massachusetts, where she majored in English. Before I get to her years in college, we're going to backtrack just slightly. Remember how I said her mother worked for Poetry Magazine? Right? Well, one day, Joan wrote a poem called Autumn... Her mother read it, loved it, and Marion submitted it to the magazine. And this is crazy because that means that Joan, at just 10 years old, would become the youngest person to be published in Poetry Magazine. So not only was she making waves in figure skating, but she also was the youngest to be published in this magazine. Side note, we're going to talk about Timmy Osado real fast because this man... Makes an appearance a couple times throughout Joan's life. Basically, they became sporadic lovers. Timmy went to school at Parker with Joan. I mention him because even Joan's first husband says he was the real love of Joan's life. I don't know. But now Timmy Timmy would leave Parker and join the 442nd Niaji Regiment. I don't know if I said that right. <laughs> Where he would win a bronze star. And I just wanted to mention him because when I say Timmy later on, it's, it's this guy that I'm talking about. Got it. Um, I'll write this down. Now, at 17 years old, Joan decided to hang up her ice skates for good and focus on English and painting. Being an artist in the 1940s was already hard, but being female and an artist was even worse. Women would often be the one to be by the men's side helping their art versus the one making it. Often people would say that men were more creative than women too. So Joan strived to make Sure, this would never happen in her career as an artist, and sure enough, she did just that. Now, once Joan had success as a painter, she kept quiet about her skating past, mainly because she didn't see the point in the comparison between figure skating and abstract painting, which we all know that during the time she was becoming an artist, the press and anyone else who would have probably pushed her away from painting and more towards yeah. skating, because that was the time period. I think if I was her, I would put on my skates 
get a ton of paint and just skate around uh, the ice and just splatter paint everywhere and make a cool piece out of it. Both of your passions into one. Yeah, that sounds pretty cool. But I doubt they would let her do that because, I don't know, more strict back then. Mm. Or I'll use my skates as like a palette knife. <laughs> and cut up the canvas that way. <laughs> All right. While attending Smith College, Joan was placed in Parker House. This is where she was housed with about 45 other females. Now, Joan wasn't a very likable person. She made two friends in the house pretty fast, but others were not really keen to her. They considered Joan to be unkind and rude, and she often took harsh digs at fellow housemates. And the language she used shocked some. By shock, I mean, she literally said, fuck. And these women were like, oh, my God. So shocking. Like, how dare you say that? How ladylike. I know. You swore? Ew, gross. (laughs) So, and I I literally wrote in there, which I guess at the time was not ladylike. (laughs) It's just stupid. I feel like this is just like some stupid patriarch thing back in the day, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you know. I know. You know? We all know. You know. We all know. Joan really focused on her schooling and soon realized that a lot of the women there would go out on weekends not to enjoy the night out, but to essentially find Mr. Right. And Joan never ruled out getting married, but she knew that that life was not for her. Remembering um, being married back in the 40s and trying to be an artist was basically career suicide. So she never ruled it out, but it wasn't something that she was going to like pursue. Joan did manage to have her first solo art exhibit in 1943 at her old school, Frances Parker. This would be the start of her painting career. After this, in the summer of 1944, Joan Joan enrolled in Oxbow Summer School of Painting in Michigan. This is where Joan would meet Robert Van Newman. He was Joan's figure painting instructor. And this interaction and her whole time at Oxbow during the summer pushed her to want to pursue painting even more. Robert taught at Chicago School of the Art Institute, and this would be where Joan would later transfer. She stated, time to, she stated, time to become a painter. I felt one doesn't paint by being an English major. One paints by painting full time. Hmm. <laughs> An interesting fact, well, I find interesting, you might find this interesting too, is that she took art history under Kathleen Blackshear, who was a protege of Helen Gardner. And Helen is the author of Art Through the Ages, which is on our bookshelf over there. And we had to study art history in college. So pretty pretty crazy, like, that little connection. I don't know, I find it interesting. Fascinating. So That's cool, though. I like that. Yeah, it is cool. Like a small world. It is small world. Just kick him out. What do you want? Punch him in the fupa. Punch the fupa. He does have a fupa. What do you want to be in here for, dude? I know. He's going to cuddle with me once. I don't want to. So, Joan having conservative, uptight parents. She held strong opinions about social justice. Around 1945, Joan devoted her time to communism to basically help liberate the mental power of the masses. So Joan studied, you know, the typical text, Marxist stuff, and attended regular meetings, and she learned a ton. 
But in the Joan fashion of not wanting to stick to the rules, she often refused to follow the rules that made no sense to her. So she got in trouble for liking Picasso and sleeping with certain people. <laughs> Wait, she slept with Picasso? No, I said liking Picasso, like oh. his artwork. But And she would get in trouble for sleeping with certain people that oh. were like, you know, not of the communism party. Oh, just regular American. Yeah, pretty much. Now, Joan, with all that she's embracing in her world, her friend Zuko, which she met at Oxbow during the summer, and Zuko would become one of Joan's lifelong friends, head to Mexico for the summer. A lot of artists during this time sought out inspiration from Mexico and also because of the affordability at this time, and they managed to take portable easels, turpentine, and everything else you need and ended up going to Guano- Guanajuato? Did I say that right? No. <laughs> <laughs> You're like two miles off. What is it? Guanajuato. Guanajuato? I feel like I butchered that stuff. Guanajuato. (laughs) Joan was enthralled by the realness that Mexico had. She often would sketch out portraits and ideas in her sketchbook to later paint. In Joan's paintings during this time, her figures look almost uncomfortable with like just everything that she would do during this time. And there's one particular painting so the craftsmanship in her paintings are really shaky too, and the mark making is not your typical confident strokes you you would later see in your Mitchell paintings. So this was just kind of out of the realm of what Joan Mitchell's paintings would later become. Mm. Uh, you want a fun fact? What? Guanajuato is known for their mummies. Oh. They have. A, that looks like me in the morning. They have a ton of mummies, <laughs> and they're just everywhere. They're just chilling, like on the side of the road, and yeah, yeah. oh, caverns and stuff. They're all from like. So can you go to like a mummy museum? Yeah, look, I'm showing you pictures. I know that's cool. Continue. Sorry. (laughs) Okay. Uh, After the first summer, Joan and Zuka made plans to visit again in the summer of 1946. The second year, they ended up visiting places that would have murals. By Riviera. Wow, I can't say his name. (laughs) Diego Rivera? (laughs) Rivera and. uh, Why am I butchering these names all of a sudden? Go home, you're drunk. (laughs) Yes, I am. All right, this this time around, they wanted rooms on the outskirts. Um, During this time, Joan was seeing Manuel, but also this guy named Dick, and also her future husband to be Barney Rossett. So she was seeing three dudes at one time. So I'm like, go get a girl, you know? Um, Dick found out she was seeing other people and was like, nah, I'm out. But then she still saw Manuel and Barney at the same time. And I kind of just love this for her. She's just living her life and doing her thing. So in 1947, Joan graduates and received the James Nelson Raymond Traveling Fellowship. She ultimately waited to use this in 1948 because of the post-war conditions that were happening in Europe. So she won her fellowship uh, from a senior exhibition, but she didn't use it until after her senior year. Now, Joan, during the time that she was waiting, she submitted work for Chicago Vicinity Annual Juried Exhibition, but it wasn't until 1947 that her work was accepted. Um, it was rejected in 1946. Her work, Tired Children, is a lithograph that depicts two children with their heads downward, and this is the work that she submitted. Uh, it is a very unique piece. It's different from what we all know as Joan Mitchell paintings today. 
Joan also won the Print Committee Prize of $150. During the same year, she and Barney moved together and moved to Brooklyn together, where she continued to bust out paintings. So, so much happened in between 1947 and 1948. New York was awakening to paintings during 1947, and Joan took this time to extend her knowledge and art even more. Originally wanting to go to China with her fellowship, Joan eventually used her fellowship to go to Paris, France. So on June uh, 24th, 1948, she headed on over. Now, Joan found Paris to be sad, and it really disappointed her. She rented a one-room flat without water or electricity for $400 a month, which I think if I was living in Paris, I would be disappointed as well, especially considering I wouldn't have water or electricity in a tiny one-bedroom apartment. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, in Paris, her friend Zuko was already there, and then later Barty would come to join Joan uh, in her not-too-great one-room flat. During 1949, Joan fell into a deep depression, and soon she would be hospitalized from having, uh, having contracted bronchitis. Her doctor told her she should finish out the winter in southern France. Using her connections with Timmy, remember her one true love. Uh, so Timmy's family moved um, or helped her move out of Paris. Um, and they landed in, I'm going to butcher this so bad. Guanajuato. <laughs> no. Oh, okay. We're in France. Guanajuato. Le lavendo en Francis Cote de Azur. Maybe. No, it sounded French to me. <laughs> Joan had um, awakened when she arrived at her new home, embracing all the beautiful colors and architecture um, that she lived. Now, since Barney's arrival to Paris, he was persistent on marrying Joan. And Joan was not against marriage, but she didn't want it right then and now. Well, you know, Joan ended up blowing through her whole entire fellowship money. And so after several talks with um, her mom, uh, she used the only resource that she had, which was Barney. And he was like, of course, I'm not going to take you back, no matter how hard you beg, unless you marry me. So with that in tow, Joan and Barney married on September 10th, 1949. And then off they went back to New York, leaving France in the dust. Oh, and then that's how Barney got a show. <laughs> Yeah, he became the dancing purple dinosaur mm-hmm. with Demi Lovato. Yeah, and Selena Gomez. <laughs> clean up, clean up. All right, New York. Uh, oh wait, I I messed that up. Okay, picking up where we left off with Joan. Okay, and they moved from France back to New York. So, um. Joan tried to get into galleries in New York, but was rejected. And an art dealer named Julius Carl Bach told her, if only you were French and male and dead, then that was when you'd get a show. So you'd have to be dead to even get your work featured in a gallery. I don't know why society hated on women being creative or in the fine arts. (laughs) It's ridiculous to me. But during Joan's time in New York, she got close with several artists, such as Landy Kooning and Helen Frankenthaler. She soon established a studio on 11th Street uh, and dived right back into her works like she was back in France again. So you might be thinking, oh, wow, look, look at Joan. She's married. 
doing her thing, seems super happy, right? Well, yeah. Wrong. (laughs) Wrong. Well, in steps in good old Mike Goldberg. Now, Barney and Joan had a rocky marriage. I mean, we can already tell because literally conned her into marrying him so she could come back to the States. So Mike just, you know, rocked that a little bit more. And soon an affair started and it was mainly all about sex and alcohol and more sex. I think Joan was just also drawn to Mike because... He was a painter as well, so they had this like type of connection. But also, I don't think Joan even wanted to marry Barney and just married him so that she could get back home from France. Wow. But I don't know. I'm just I'm that's just my opinion on that. Still. I don't know for sure. So we see a shift in Joan's work during this time period, and she started to dilute her paints and change the way she used her paint. Instead of outlining and seeing shapes, Joan <laughs> stop. <laughs> what are you doing? Oh, sorry. I'm trying to see if I can lick my nose with my tongue. <laughs> Instead of out- outlining and seeing shapes, Joan started to blend them together and movement was more prevalent in her works. Joan moved studios at this time, so maybe that helped her because she brought in new friendships from the move of the different studio. Now, you know how Mike and Joan were in this love affair? Well, Mike decided to write a check to himself, but it wasn't his money. He was getting it from Barney's account. So he forged a check of $400 and signed Barney's name. Well, Barney never used this account. Oh, by the way, I should probably backtrack and let you know that Barney was rich. Clearly, considering, you know, hmm. they he moved her back. I think the ticket was like $980 just for one of them to move like all the stuff back. So in today's money, that's like five grand. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I don't know. You fooled me. (laughs) Okay. So anyway, he forged Barney's name and the bank was like, uh, called 911. We got, we got a bad dude over here because this guy doesn't use his account. And the cops rolled up and was like, Mike, what are you doing? And then they arrested him. (laughs) So Joan was heartbroken, and of course, Barney didn't press charges, I think mainly because he wanted to keep Joan happy, and the way to do that was to shorten his time, and during all this, um, Barney and Joan's relationship was actually improving. She even went and got her MFA at the Art Institute of Chicago. Things wouldn't last so good for Joan. When Mike was allowed visits, Joan would go and visit him in Rockland. And unfortunately, Joan was raped by an attendant at Rockland. This is just absolutely horrible. Joan did say this is one of the darker sides of being with Mike. But honestly, like, what the fuck? That's not a thing you just get over and it's like, oh, I'm with this person. Yeah, he's in prison and I go and visit. Like, and I I, I got raped. Like, what? (laughs) You know? So I think this is also why in later years she was um, an alcoholic. And I think that's part part of the reason was just her not coping with this incident. The year, though, is 1950. Um, and this was a good year for Joan in art, in her art world. She showed in three galleries. And by 1951, she was developing an underground reputation with artists. She was starting to become a major player in the art world. Joan took in... Uh, or Joan took part in the street exhibition of paintings and sculpture in 1951. And that same year, she studied art history and French at NYU. Joan was 
just nonstop during these years. She was a force, that's for sure, because in just a year, in 1952, Joan would have her first solo exhibition in New York at the New Gallery. Now... Wait, she wasn't dead. Or a guy. I know, right? Crazy. She actually got in. Now, Joan's um, personal life was not going so hot. Not only was Joan having an ongoing affair with Mike, but she was also seeing this dude named Evans Herman. Yes, she's still married, by the way. So Barney wanted a, a divorce. Joan tried to stay with Barney, and she wanted to have an open type marriage. Uh, remember how I mentioned she was friends with Elaine de Kooning? Well, Elaine de Kooning and Bill de Kooning, their marriage was an open marriage where they basically stayed together <coughs> and then went and had affairs outside of the marriage, and they were okay with it. So Joan wanted um, to have this with Barney, and I think mainly because Barney had money and was able to like help fund her studios and all this. But Barney was like, yeah, no, bye. She a gold digger. I don't think she's a gold digger because she also comes from money. Remember, her mom's a Harris. But wait, she, her mom's a what? A Harris. A Harris. Oh, I thought she's like person that does hair. Harris. No. <laughs> and so. No. And so I don't I don't think it was necessarily for the money. I think it was because like, you know, back in back in the day, um, man was supposed to, you know, support It's about the money. I don't know. Okay, so maybe okay, you know what? It's it's about the money. All right. Um, so they divorced on May fourteenth, nineteen forty two. Just as they divorce, um, Joan found out she was pregnant. And literally, Barney helped Joan abort the baby, whose father was Evan Hermans. Now, remember how I said having a baby, getting married, and whatnot is career suicide? It's part of the reason why she had an abortion. Because she knew if she kept the baby, she wouldn't be able to make it into the art world, even more so. She then found out she was pregnant again, but by this time, it was with Mike. And she ended up having a miscarriage with this baby. So, so much is happening in just a short amount of time. Like, I'm stressing out, and this already happened. Like, that's, that's so stressful. Like, a miscarriage, an abortion, a divorce. Oh, like, I can't. Like, do I have gray hair already? I mean, I do have gray hair, but is it more coming? Mm-hmm. All right. Not all this was stressful, though. During this time, she started to become friends with poet Frank O'Hara and entered in with his circle of artists and writers. Now, Mike was, re- re- Mike was released, and Joan and Mike continued their relationship, but it was not good. Not good at all. They would go at it, not in the good way, the terrible way where neighbors would hear them basically trying to kill each other. Joan would literally appear with black eyes and bruises, and friends just didn't know what to say or do at this point. In later years, friends would just describe this relationship as a violent affair. During this um, time, though, that's when Joan started taking um, Dexedrine to t- treat her depression. But of course, this is Joan we're talking about, and she mixed it with alcohol. So the effects were a little bit worse, and the medication didn't help that much, considering she was mixing it with alcohol. So Joan would have two shows um, in 1953. One is her solo exhibition with Stable Gallery, and the second annual exhibition of painting and sculpture. A lot of information. I told you she's got a lot of information. We're going to skip to the year 1955 because from 1953 to 1955, a lot of relationship stuff happened. And I'm just not going to get into it. 
in the book that I read, it was it was a lot of information. But she just continued to paint, and um, it wasn't until 1955 where a big life event happened for Joan, and that's when she traveled all the way back to Guanajuato. No, oh. France, <laughs> and she began her adventure once more over in Paris, France. Now. After being in the States for a while, when she returned to France, she had to get acquainted with the paints again. Uh, I never thought that colors of paint would not be the same across the board, but apparently they are. Because Joan has synesthesia, it's a lot harder for her to get to her normal color palette that she would use in the States. So she looked at a specific color and she thought it was this color. It was actually not that specific color because the paints were labeled differently. So she had to get acquainted well duh it's french no they're labeled in no i don't i don't think it was like it's not like a english and a french thing it's like they were actually called different things yes because they're in a different continent joan would meet john paul riopelli and the two hit it off because for the next 20 years of joan's life she would be with john paul because I don't want to butcher it. Uh, I'm just going to call him JP. How about that? Okay. JP Morgan? Yeah. Now, through her connections with JP, Joan met a lot of people, one being Jacques Betty. It's just crazy when doing research. Because I know the time period of these artists, but it doesn't like hit me until I'm like, reading the names. And I'm like, wait, you knew Jacques Betty or you knew Frank O'Hare? Like, it's just weird that like they're so interconnected back then. <laughs> Okay, anyway, during this time of 1955, Joan was living this kind of nomadic lifestyle. She was constantly moving, and it was increasingly difficult for for her because she would have to constantly roll up her canvases and cart them to her new destination, and it was just really inconvenient for her. In 1956, you know, in 1956, Joan was an recent American watercolorist, which was organized by the Museum of Modern Art, or MoMA, in New York. And now Joan only stayed in France for about six months before moving back to New York. She was still writing to JP. But remember how I mentioned Timmy? Well, he's back in her life and they quickly start another affair. So let me just recap. So she moved to France. She was only there for six months. She met Jean Paul. They hadn't started this whole love affair. She lived a nomadic lifestyle and she was only there for a couple, like literally seven months at most. And then she moved back to New York where she was featured at the MoMA or was in an exhibition. And then she ran into Timmy and they had an affair. Okay. Quick recap. Now, this affair though wasn't just your typical, like, oh, another affair with Timmy, right? Well, Timmy's married and Timmy's wife is pregnant. So Timmy is a little piece of shit. Because I went through being pregnant, and I can't imagine like. Wait, you're pregnant? I was pregnant. Oh, I didn't know. We have. She's literally sleeping right over there. Oh yeah. (laughs) Oh my gosh. So I just, I just can't. I don't like Timmy. Like he's just a dick. No. He's a penis. No, like he, he's just an asshole. Oh, what? (laughs) You go talking from start naming body parts now. No. Because Timmy was married and this affair, it was just horrible. Um, Joan, Timmy couldn't leave his wife. He wasn't going to leave his wife for Joan. And so basically cut the ties and Joan went into heavy drinking once again. And I mean, 
I don't think she ever really got out of drinking heavily, but this whole affair and everything that she just started drinking more on top of what she was already doing. Joan was gearing up at this time for her third solo exhibition with Staple Gallery and literally she was drunk and just hated her paintings and apparently her friend Mike, yes, the Mike that went to prison for forging checks. Who? Mike Goldberg. Jones. I, I said who? And I was like, Mike Jones. Oh my god. <laughs> Sorry. Early 2000s reference. <laughs> Mike was with her and, and she just destroyed her canvas among other things. And Mike being the good friend that he is, he fixed her canvases and even repainted it so that it would be ready the next day. That's a true friendship right there. Mm. As I said before that female artists have struggled in the art world, Joan still continues to struggle even though her achievements were growing. Joan's prices even increased. Actually, they tripled by the time that it was 1957. So she could sell one piece of artwork for about $1,200. Joan had a major feature story in art news. Yes, in good Joan fashion, she was reluctant to talk about her work, but she did manage to get through it. And so this pushed her kind of more on the map. So we get into the year 1958. We have pieces being brought. Wow. We have pieces being bought by museums. Um, Hemlock was bought by the Whitney Museum and then City Landscape was purchased by the per- for the permanent collection at the Art Institute of Chicago. So that's still there today because it's part of the permanent collection. This is a pretty big like feat in the art world to have museums purchase your artwork, but it's even more so because she's female. Some people <laughs> during this time that were like, oh, Joan Mitchell, uh, gross, a female painter, whatever. And they just like didn't care. So some people were just like, meh, where's the next male artist? Which is pretty sad. It's sad. It is sad. All right, we're moving on though to 1959 and Joan moves back to Paris with... Oh, I thought she went back to Guanajuato. No, she just went to You know Paris. what's sad, more sad about this whole thing? What? She never goes back to she Guanajuato. She went back twice. To Guanajuato? Yeah, I said that. Oh, okay, good. She went first summer and then she went back again the next summer. Oh, that's it. Yeah, that's it. I know. Well, because her love was John Paul and he was in France. Mm. So she, you're basically saying she should have fallen in love in Mexico. And so in 1959... Joan moves to Paris with Jean-Paul, and this place was not cheap. Literally was the top floor of a warehouse that was 3,500 square feet, and the owner wanted two k up front and $300 a month. Plus, it needed renovations, so they spent a pretty penny in making this place the perfect place for a home and a studio. Now you think, oh my gosh, again, things are going so great for Joan. It's smooth sailing. <laughs> We're talking about Joan Mitchell here, so nothing is smooth sailing. So before they moved to Paris and into this beautiful home, Joan found out that Jean-Paul had an affair with the woman, and she's pregnant. (laughs) Oh, and it gets worse. Because you know how Joan wanted to have family, and then she had an abortion and then a miscarriage? Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, this lady's going to keep the baby. So this made Joan mad, not so much because of the affair, like the affair, but because of the baby, because that's something that Joan like really wanted, but doesn't ever have. Since Joan had an abortion, um, abortions, I think she was just salty, mainly because her partners were the ones that pushed her to do it. And she really wanted a child, but also her art career would fall as well. So she was kind of trapped in these like mixed emotions. 
Now, Joan and JP's relationship was not good. Yes, both had affairs, but JP would just sleep with anybody that would notice him. Literally, he would just be talking to somebody, and if they flirted to him casually, he would just try to sleep with them. Joan, knowing he would sleep around, just started having affairs as well, because why not, I guess? And this resulted in Joan being aggressively jealous, and John Paul saw no reason to change his ways such like so late in life. So this is just a huge hot mess, and they're just going at it, and, like hot tempered. Just I don't understand why be with someone if you know they're a cheater. If you cheated, I don't know. It's just weird. Like if you knew they they were a cheater to begin with, they're not gonna change. I don't know where you know. No, it's true, but you. I think you have to put in perspective. She was an alcoholic. She was a female. During that time, if you were single or you lived with roommates, you were considered a lesbian, and that was even worse than just being with somebody that was having an affair. Hmm. And then she wanted to push herself in the art career. And then on top of it, she was on this medication that basically, <laughs> that like documentary that we started watching was basically like Adderall or meth mixed in that's supposed to cure her depression and, you know. Hmm. Find a nice person that's not a cheater and not rich. I, I, Hashtag a regular dude. With I'll like, just call Joan up and be like, yo, Joan. Me? Yeah. Be like. Is she still alive? No, she's not. (laughs) I'm gonna... Spoiler alert. Sorry. Oh. I I can do a seance thing. Circle. (laughs) Yeah. So, despite her relationship falling apart, Joan continued to paint. And by the time it was 1960, Joan had two solo exhibitions in Europe. This is also the same year Joan published a book that's called The Poem. So, Joan is doing really well in her career. Sadly, though, this same year that Joan was doing the most her mother was diagnosed with cancer to top that the decline of abstract expressionism was happening and this little art movement that everybody knows called pop art was coming into the picture a lot of abstract expressionist artists were disappearing and joan was one of them well so she thought because of her move to paris and this new movement in art she was saying she was being kicked out of the art world but this is far from the truth considering she had great reviews and it was just a few shorter shows than what she would normally have so joan was also shifting when she started to do printmaking at tibor press it was published in a limited box set as a collaboration between poets and painters so the art world was changing and joan was trying new things as well remember how i said that joan mentioned she was getting kicked out of the art world Yeah, well, Joan was making about $32,000 on some of her paintings just in for one painting on a sale, so it wasn't entirely bad. Joan went kind of on a break between 1963 and 1964. She didn't have a single show during these years, and she would just continue to paint, and what she would do, she would paint and paint and paint, and then she would roll these canvases up and then start another painting. So in 1963 um, was also the year that Joan lost her father. So even though they didn't have the best relationship, it's still tough losing a parent. So her mom was diagnosed with cancer. Her dad died. And so for uh, like 1963 to 1964, she just didn't pursue anything in galleries. Where in 1965, Mike, you know, Mike that forged the checks. Mike Goldberg. Mike Jones. Mike Jones. God dang it. <laughs> you felt good. So forward again. Okay, so you know he was like forging the checks from Barney? Well, he was in hot water again and he was forging de Kooning's artwork and he actually ended up in a psychiatric institution. So Joan would um, write to Mike and she continued to write to Mike. And 
this year was uneventful for Joan in the art world. Like, she kept painting, but alcoholism, depression, and the fact that her very good friend was once again um, locked up, not going the way she wanted it to do. And of course, by the next year, Joan's mother had passed away from cancer. So it seems that every time someone in Joan's life passes away, she creates paintings from that. So we see it um, with Joan's uh, mom, and we saw it with Joan's dad passing away. And then in 1967, um, Joan had another exhibition in Paris. And by that time of 1968, Joan had a permanent residence in France. Sorry, I know there's a lot of like dates being thrown out, but it's like so much happened within a like a certain time period. Like she continued to paint and then like her mom passed away and she continued to paint. And then that those paintings were up in an exhibition in Paris. And then in 1968, she actually became a permanent resident in France. So from 1968 to the end of her life, she stayed in France. Hmm. So she never went to Guanajuato. No. <laughs> Even though Joan and uh, Jean-Paul stayed together, their relationship didn't get any better. He would still go out and invite women onto his boat or leave Joan and go for weekend trips fishing or hunting. Joan pushed, though, and continued to paint. In fact, she created 49 paintings. These paintings would be called My Five Years in the Country, Joan's first major museum solo uh, exhibit. (laughs) These pieces are very beautiful, and this show had one critic state that she's one of the best American painters. Obviously, some critics were like, nah, because she's a female, and abstract expressionism, but... They're sleeping on something because this is a really great body of work. If you haven't seen the 49 paintings, just everything about it, the way that the color palette is and the movement of it to every like stroke, brushstroke that you see, she meant it. This show of her um, My Five Years in the Country pushed Joan to keep creating and soon she would have a show open up at the Whitney Museum of American Art. The opening day of her show, she called Xavier Forcade, a very big art dealer at the time, and told him to get down to her show if he wanted to be her dealer. So the night that night, Xavier, who was sick at the time, uh, became Joan's New York representative. So she was established in France, had a new representative to sell her paintings in New York. Now we're getting towards the end of Joan's life. With Xavier on on Joan's side, she started producing tons and tons of work between the years of 1974 and 1975. Now, depression would creep up on Joan, and of course, um, she began to drink heavily, and her relationship with Jean-Paul was all but great, and he would often spend months away in Canada on fishing trips, while Joan seeped deeper and deeper into her depression. Despite this, Joan would have her first solo exhibition with Xavier Fourcade, again, pushing through her depression and alcoholism. Now, with this show, she made new friends, and her friends and fellow artists Hollis Jeffcoat began hanging around and creating art with Joan. This ended in bad news, because even though Hollis was all for Joan, and later years she states she doesn't really know how it all happened, but Joan knew John Paul and Hollis were doing the dirties. <laughs> yeah, so her friend, Hollis, um, started having an affair with Joan's partner of 20 years, John Paul. I know. Uh, surprise. Of course, she called Mike and, you know, Mike. Who? You know, Mike. Mike Jones. Yeah. Oh, you <laughs> fall for this one. <laughs> I didn't. So, um, yes, the very troubled Mike. He was like, well... 
what do you expect, Joan? You placed them together. And Joan was furious, but, like, we all know JP is a man whore, so, like, come on. But honestly, I would have expected better from Hollis, who was supposedly Joan's friend. So by 1979, her relationship with JP ended. This left Joan in a a big empty house, super depressed, and she literally drank for weeks and weeks and weeks held up. From 1979 to 1981, Joan um, painted like crazy, still kept in contact with a bunch of her friends, and her lifelong friend and former psychologist, Edrita Freed, died of cancer. All right, it is my turn to take over the mic. This is a segment called The Drink History. Did you know the history of tequila? Tequila is actually a drink that is distilled in the western part of Mexico. And there's actually a town called Tequila. It is about 40 miles outside of Guadalajara. And the whole town is surrounded by the blue agave plant. So that is mainly the main area where it's developed. It's grown, harvested, distilled, and bottled. All in the same area in Tequila. Yay. Fun facts. Did you know tequila has a actual place of origin? It can only be distilled in five regions in Mexico. Guanajuato, Michoacán, Nayarit, Tamaulipas, and Jalisco. Though far uh, away from the largest producer is Jalisco, which is like the main place. died of cancer and so in honor of her Joan created a quadriptic simply titled Edrita Free. This is just a massive painting and each brush stroke you can tell is just precisely placed and the movement is so forceful. When I look at this it's mainly all deep blues but the little yellow really ties the piece together and it just gives me all the feels. Now as Joan was finishing this piece, her sister was diagnosed with stomach cancer. The hits just do not stop for Joan. And by 1982, her sister sadly died. And a devastated, heartbroken Joan once again turned to alcohol and painting. Already he's getting cancer. I know. By 1983, Joan begins her work on her Grand Valet paintings. I'm pretty sure it's Valet. I'm not entirely sure. Uh, don't don't quote me on that. <laughs> um so she starts her work on her Grand Valet paintings. I feel that these are Joan's most well-known works. I recognize these paintings more so than other works of her life, and I don't know why. Maybe because it's later in her life, and she was a well-established artist at this point, and more so than her earlier works. By the time 1984 hits, Joan was having trouble swallowing, and soon she was diagnosed with cancer of the jaw. She almost had to get her entire jaw removed but she did radiation treatments and soon was declared uh, cancer free by 1985. This wouldn't be the only hit though even though she was cancer free uh, she was soon hospitalized and had to undergo hip replacement surgery. This caused Joan to have to walk with a cane and which you can see in some of her photos during this time she's posed with a cane or she's trying to hide it in pictures. 
Then in 1987, her beloved art dealer Xavier Forque passes away. <clears throat> in the following years, Joan received many awards. By the following uh, year of 1988, Joan was awarded a Distinguished Artist Award for Lifetime Achievement from the College of Art Association of America. Joan is the first artist to receive this award since it was created during this time, and she received an honorary doctorate from the School of the Art Institute of Chicago. And then she had her exhibition, 36 Years of Natural Expressionism, and this actually toured the United States. Joan underwent a second hip surgery, and in the last years of her life, she had another solo exhibition of her pastel drawings at the Whitney Museum, and then another book called Poems, which had eight color lithographs of Joan's. <laughs> On October 30th, 1992, Joan Mitchell dies in a Paris hospital of lung cancer. Joan Mitchell was a fierce artist and paved the way for a lot of future women artists, and she really had such an interesting and adventurous life. She was a badass. <laughs> <laughs> All right. What? <laughs> no, yeah, she is. She is a badass. <laughs> um, thanks for joining me on this art history adventure. I hope you enjoyed learning today. The resources I used are Joan Mitchell, Lady Painter, Life by Patricia Albers, and JoanMitchellFoundation.org. I'll be posting pictures of some of the works I talked about in today's episode on Instagram, as well as photos of Joan. Thank you to you, the listener, and don't forget to just subscribe so you don't miss an episode, and I'll be back next week. Bye. Bye.